is an enthusiastic God. Our God is an excitable God. Our God is a God of thrills and energy. Truth always has pleasure. Conscience is the greatest blessing that can come to a moral creature. God also possesses conscience. And the conscience of God is always approving the actions of God. If selfish people could become selfish enough, if they could become intelligent enough, they would give themselves to God out of sheer selfish benefit. The evidence of the greatness of God is so astonishing that if people are worrying about their own happiness and are willing to do some research, they would want God to serve them more than anyone else. And in fact, we shall learn that's what every single repentant sinner does when he comes to Christ. He doesn't perceive the reality and the penetrating awfulness of his guilt and his sin. And it's only the cross of Christ, the cross alone, is the roadblock that undoes the intensified selfish development which we have hammered out for ourselves. This is why in heaven they shall never get tired of ovations to the Lord Jesus. And if you don't love him, don't want to go to heaven. It would be monotonous. You would get tired of repetition. But if the Lord Jesus and his cross has done something for you, if it has undone the spiral of selfish development and brought you to real joy, the love of God, then you never tire of endless ovations. And when you get through with one chorus, you repeat it because the thrill of the chorus is not repetition but a reliving as to what this chorus is describing. If we may step down around 500 steps, we may say that the language of romance becomes very monotonous to those who are not involved. <laughs> but to those who are, true romantic development is a gift of God. And we having four married children and an abundance of grandchildren have some experience of what we're speaking of. I say we have stepped down 500 steps. We have not stepped out of reality because God has created this wonderful thing. And I don't need to say that the slush that the world calls love is not love at all. That there is a creative, beautiful development in the area of God's creation. 
that has a, an expression of heart. And expressions of heart are not monotonous. If Jesus has crossed our pathway, undone us before him, brought us to that place of submission where we realize is the real essence of joy, then there's no end to our ovation. My friends, we will be effective this summer in our service for God in exact proportion to our warmth of heart toward God and our appreciation of the being of God. You cannot generate enthusiasm. In the industrial world, uh, we have such uh, statements, oh, he is a self-starter, by which we mean that he has a peculiar something that gives him energy. Others are not leaders. They have to be not only started, but prodded. This mysterious quality of energy thrives on the concept of what you're trying to do. You can make monotonous things very exciting and very interesting. And it's just like the good Lord to put living vitality in what we have to do. So if you're going to open the door of the Lord's house, you do it as unto the Lord, and he opens it with you. If you're going to do all sorts of menial tasks, you can't lose. The scripture says whatsoever we do, do all to the glory of God, and you can't fail but receive a reward that we don't feel we're entitled to. If people mistake what we're trying to do in life, what of it? People are fallible anyway. But we serve a joyous Christ who doesn't forget anything. And if you remember the 25th of Matthew, we have a lot of folk that remembered all the little things they did for God. And God didn't remember them. We have another class of people who served the Lord and forgot what they were trying to do and just went out to serve the Lord. And the Lord said, do you remember when you did this little thing? Remember when you did this little thing? No, Lord, we did it unto you. We forgot all about it. Well, you did, and I didn't forget. So we read in the 6th of Romans, God is not unrighteous to forget our labor of love, which we have uh, lived for him. I hope before we talk too much further, in the name of the word of God, we'll feel that we are representing the most glorious reality that could ever enter into the mind of man. And I trust before the word of God, uh, we have to depart in the rigorous routines of life that we will have seen a Christ that will kindle and fire our enthusiasm. Paul wrote to Timothy, stir up the flame that is in you. And if you look at the original there, it's to keep stirring up, keep constantly stirring up the flame which is in you. Unless the flame of God's reality burns within us, we will never be useful to serve God this summer. Many preachers and representatives of the Lord Jesus act as though sin is a fiction. Doesn't involve real problems. Doesn't involve real bondage. The very approach is anything but alarm. When we see the devastation of sin, when our minds are enlightened as to the bondage 
our own development has brought to us. And if we've experienced what Jesus said, if the Son therefore shall set you free, ye shall be pretty free. Ye shall be 80% free. You'll have to have very great times of darkness. I'll help you with most of your battles, but there's some of them you really have to grit your teeth and, and grind away into utter defeat. And I'll help you, but I'm not able to deliver you. No, Jesus had within his bosom, we read, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and set down at the right hand of God. What was this joy? that all the problems of reconciliation might be spoused, that now the Lord Jesus might visit the souls of men and do them with his mighty power, deliver them from the stupid, idiotic bondage of sin, liberate them into the presence of his glorious being without any end and without measure. And so the scripture has to add superlatives and the writers have great difficulty. All they can do is add prepositions to verbs to add extra words in, they can talk about the abundant fullness as if fullness wouldn't be enough. The glory of Jesus Christ is described as in such a glorious fashion. There's no language. I trust we shall go forth with spirit-born enthusiasm to represent our blessed Lord. Let us review in the time that remains in this session some of the thoughts. I'm glad we don't have to look for things to say in the name of the Lord. I'm glad we don't have to say, well, now, folks, that's all we can think of. That's all the food we can get. Uh, we wish it were more, but it's a, it's a very meager press affair. I'm glad that the Spirit of God has made us so rich and has enthusiasmed our heart in such a glorious way that we rejoice in the glory of God. I'm glad that he can touch our hearts so we never tire speaking of him and never tire dwelling upon our attachment. Looking at the basic revelation of the being of God, we have these passages describing the Trinity. Call your attention to Genesis 1.1. And other places there, we have God used in the plural, as you have probably heard. The Old Testament does not reveal the Trinity in specific terms, but its language makes ready for the full revelation of the New Testament. So we have distinct impartations of the profound, exciting fact that it's a lot more precious to me that I as a Christian have the privilege of entering in to a fellowship between divine personalities that's already going on. This, to my mind, is exciting. And so we have the privilege of relationship. And although there are a threefold personality, yet there is a profound unity. In Deuteronomy 6.4, we have the Hebrew word one. And we understand that this means united or can denote a compound unity. To my mind, one of the most important scriptures revealing the oneness of God in its 
Trinitarian revelation appears in the high priestly prayer of the Lord in the 17th of John. Look at the beauty of this. Verse 21, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are. I ask you, can our personalities be amalgamated? Can we be fused together so we no longer have individuality? And yet we can be absolutely one in our purpose, in our life, in our ambition. We can be absolutely one in what we propose to do. What do you propose to do, my friend, if you live 10 years, 20 years, 30, 40? Can you say like the psalmist, my heart is fixed, oh God, my heart is fixed. From here on out, my whole life is settled in what it's going to do. This is the oneness. We're in the era of the horizontal face. Not with the corners turned down. You're supposed to sell Jesus as the joy giver. But the apostle had a different language. He wanted to go see Timothy. And what for? Did he want to see the horizontal face and the relaxation and the uh, total rest? Oh, no. He wanted to see some of those big tears dropping down. Tears of burden. Tears of love. Tears of worship. And by the strangest of language, when he would see those tears, he would be filled with joy. What for? Unity of purpose. He's heard my own son Timothy in the faith. He's living for the same thing I am. He intends to burn out for God. He doesn't intend to have tickling ears and throttle his message to suit the majority particularly with the financial backing. He proposes to testify for the Lord, no matter what the consequences are. And when Paul would see those tears trickling down his face, he would feel a unity. My friend, where's the great joy of life? Not in the grin. Where are people attached together in the burdens of life? Many marriages break up when the battles are solved. I mean the struggles. When the family is raised and the financial wrestling is gone and the mortgage of the house is paid for and, and the children have been brought to maturity, many couples find they have nothing more to cry about, nothing more to struggle about, and so their attachment shifts into the shallow and soon marriage goes on the rock. The real essence of joy is not the horizontal composure but the living burden of the resurrected Christ. The real unity that comes is when we take up Jesus' cross and he gives us the long end and he takes the short heavy end and just like little Johnny walking along carrying a 
pail of water with us and he's stretching his little arm out and he says, Mama, Daddy, I'm helping you, am I not? We wouldn't have the heart to say he wasn't. He says, yes, Johnny, you're helping me a great deal. But we walk along with Jesus, feel his heart pulse, feel his burden of life. Many times we get out of order like the disciples did and say, what shall we have? And Jesus, in his great compassion, says, you're helping me. And when we perceive his tears and his burden and his love, and we are willing to share it, that's when hearts are knit together. So we read in this passage, there's a oneness in the divine existence, a oneness of life, a oneness of purpose, and that Jesus came that you and I should be united in what we're trying to do. I think this is the most beautiful revelation we have in Scripture of the unity of the Godhead. And when I think of God's mental ability, his ability of thought, when I think of the being, the moral character of God, when I think of the free will of God and its majestic omnipotence, to think that there is in the Godhead a perfect unity and a perfect agreement is beyond my worth to appreciate. And when I think that Jesus came to introduce us into this divine holy oneness, shall anyone arise to say that Christianity is an empty thing, that to give the life to Jesus is a shallow thing? No, God admits us behind the scenes, imparts us to us truth, a living reality invites us to live lives that we'll be glad we live. The apostle comes to the end of life. He looks back to the grace of God. He's not a miserable old person. He's a very relaxed person. He's glad he's lived. And think of the knowledge he's gained of the greatness of God. My friends, the divine unity and the divine conversations and when I shall seek to enlarge on this concept in connection with the atonement and how the world witnessed its most awe-inspiring scene ever to dawn its existence and how the Father withdrew himself of necessity as the Son bore the sin of the world, not withdrawing himself in indignation, not withdrawing himself in vindictiveness, if you please, but sharing the broken-hearted weight of sin that the Son was bearing. And when I think of the Holy Spirit who anointed the Son to live his life in the energy of the Spirit, had to withdraw his energy, or Jesus would never have died. And certainly this withdrawal of energy was not a pleasure. And so we have the divine personalities together sharing the problem of man's reconciliation. You and I can enter in, and Jesus says so. We may be crucified together with Christ in an actual reality. That the old man may die and the body of sin may be destroyed, which wasn't any good anyway. God's not taking anything away from us that's of any value. He's just 
but terminating the undesirable to introduce us into the desirable. He's just trying to take the butcher knife away from us that we might hurt ourselves with so that we may have objects that are safe to play with. If we may sanctify that term. Actually, God's in favor of excitement of the right kind. Can you think of anything greater than the excitement of truth? Can you think of anything greater than this discovery which God allows us to think upon? Can you think of anything greater than an attachment to the risen Christ? Can you think of anything greater than losing our captors and having a new slave owner who breathes upon us in love? People say, the Christian life is hard, but it's wrong. Jesus in the Word of God points the other way. The life of the transgressor is hard. When I hear anyone think he's giving so much to Christ and serving Christ, he hasn't met Christ. Think of the privilege of life. The Godhead are spiritual in essence. You say, how can I comprehend the spiritual? Easy. Try to analyze yourself. See if you can. Can you mechanize yourself? What is it that's disturbing the world? What is it that's disturbing this city? As I was coming along in the plane yesterday and we were above the clouds and we saw the beautiful blue sky at 26,000 feet and the good Lord helped me to have two good visits on the way down with thoughtful individuals. And with great forcefulness of mind, I say, down here, people are butting horns. They're trying to make each other miserable. They're trying to extract from each other all sorts of things. And he had to agree. I said, up here, everything is calm. Everything is beautiful. Everything is restful. And he had to agree it was. Is it a great thing then to leave what the scriptures call beggarly elements? Is it a great thing to long to be entangled again in the yoke of bondage? I know if people have been introduced into the heart of Jesus Nothing is too great to give him. We can understand ourselves because we are more than the physical. This is the very thing that's disturbing the world. Years ago, I saw a beautiful bird from South America in our zoo. Had a big, beautiful beak. Very lovely cage. Rounded off trunks to sit on. Food of the best sort. Live food. Everything that could be wanted. But this bird was always taking off. Always flexing the wing. Stretching up on its toes. And 
stretching out his long wings and, and waving them. This bird perceived that it was made for a higher endeavor than sitting upon this, the stump of a tree and eating the very best of food. Man perceives that there's something very mysterious about his personality. He perceives that he is more than the physical. You always have a good starting point with individuals. Basically, they know that they are more than what they're performing. They know they have equipment that's not being used. They know that they have endowments that are greatly to be enlarged upon. We could go on to say that we understand very little of what we do every day. Oh yes, there are theories of electricity, but what is it? There are theories of magnetic adjustment in a substance, but what happens? People can formulate all sorts of theories, but we know practically nothing in the absolute. We know processes of combustion, but what is it? We say certain things are liberated, certain things are combined, but how? And if we soon analyze ourselves, we find out we know very little. So if we simply ask ourselves the bold reality, we perceive that we are more than the physical. So in this sense, it's easy to understand the spiritual essence of God. God is revealed then, therefore, to be spiritual. He's revealed to have an endless duration of time. I trust you will fascinate yourself with some of these scriptures. He's revealed to have an intellectual activity or a personal intelligence. He's revealed to have an emotional reaction. My dear friends, in this research reading that I spoke of, something completely new came to my realization. I found a hundred or so scriptures throughout the Bible that admitted me behind the scenes of God's emotional tenderness and compassion. This is remarkable. The great of the world are known as those who have an iron hand. They are not known as people of tenderness and compassion. In other words, dynamics or power is not associated with delicacy and tenderness. They're opposites in our way of thinking. When, therefore, we read that God is omnipotent, we immediately assume that he's not tender, that he's not moving with compassion that he doesn't have experiential reactions, that God can't be saddened or disappointed. <coughs> I'm obliged to say that the theology I was taught throws over my concept of God. It represented God as the arbitrary individual who is electing some to salvation and passing by others. 
who was allowed to whatever he did, and no one was to ask any questions, who was so far removed from uh, tender, abounding compassion that this was antagonistic to omnipotence. But when I come to the Bible, this God that has created the vast universe as a partial manifestation of his omnipotence, get it, and his wisdom, partial. The creator's always got to be greater than the product. God has not explored all his abilities. The greatness of God. And along comes the Bible, the Word of God. Pat me on the shoulder. Come, my son or my daughter, behind the scenes of God's omnipotence and discover for yourself something profound. That the God of energy and compassion, God of energy and power, is also a God of compassion and love. I read of a mother who set her table for several years because John went over the hill and said he was never coming back. And Dad would sometimes raise the question when he wasn't thinking, Mom, what's this extra dish for? And why this extra food? Oh, Johnny may come back. The delicate compassions of life. This mother was suffering a different sort than Johnny was. This mother had carried Johnny, saw him at the initiation of life, and throughout its manifestations, developed a heart affection at this development. The reason mother suffered more than Johnny was because of the exposure of opportunity of realizing the relationship of mother and Johnny. In other words, sorrow and suffering are according to perception, according to realization. Now do you see when the Bible tells me that God is grieved in his heart? and that God goes through the whole earth seeking those whose heart is right toward him. When the Bible reveals the agonizing disappointment of God, when God through the prophets is revealed in a great humiliation and said, what more could I have done than I have done? My friends, when those words come forth from the great divine being with his amazing comprehension when those words come forth from the initiator of every abundance and lament that man won't travel this journey unto which he was created when God only wants to bless man man doesn't want to be blessed when God knows what he has to give man Man stupidly doesn't know what God has to give him. 
the great heartbreak and compassion of God. I arose from this concept of truth with a new energy. We are not serving, as Jesus said, we have a high priest who cannot be touched. We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Ah, yes. God has emotion. God has experience. May I just read one glorious, sweet little passage I commend to you in this Meyer prophet, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord thy God, in the midst of thee, is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Who is it that's rejoicing over us? We're not worthy to be rejoiced over. But think of the quantity of God's rejoicing. Also think of the quantity of God's disappointment. This is the God we're to represent, not a mechanical robot of the heavens who moves in a similarity to our mechanized age. The computer uh, composure is a very great interest in our day, but it's heartless. When our gentlemen come back with their reams of figures and calculations that are dumbfoundedly astonished, and they tell me that this computer rattles off its two inches thick of, of figures and 20-some inches wide and so many uh, seconds, minutes aren't, minutes are too long to talk too much about, yet this machine pushes out its data and has no heart in what it's doing. Man can originate mechanization, but he can't originate affection. He can't originate joy. He can't originate gladness. He can't originate reactions of grief and disappointment. This is the God we're to represent. Oh, I feel so thankful to God today for such revelations as this. I trust we'll be in love with God. I trust we'll be fully convinced that we represent the greatest issue in this whole world. And that if God be for us, who then can be against us? The apostle rose up in the utter ridiculousness. It appears that the apostle was caught up into heaven there at Lystra when he was stoned. He saw things unlawful to utter. No wonder he came back with such dogmatic expressions. But I trust that this concept of God Think of Jesus, how he walked the earth. He saw a chicken here with the little head sticking out through its wings. And I looked at a mother duck just recently on the bank, and the temperature was getting down in the 40s. And this year old duck was standing there watching around for 
situations and these little fellas were brushing up into a place of warmth. Jesus saw that and he said, that's what I'd like to do with you. I don't want to hurt you. I want you to experience my being. He says, how often would I have gathered you together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under its wings? He would not. He came offering himself as the king. The children filled in the ovations. And Jesus said, if they held their peace, God would miraculously have to require the stones to cry out because there had to be a recognition that the creator and Lord of the world was appealing to his own. And when he came over the brow of the hill and he saw the city, he wept. And if you look into the original, it's a weep with convulsion. It's not a quiet dripping of tears. It's a climax. And he says, if thou hadst only known, if thou hadst only known, will you say that the privilege of entering into the emotions of God is a shallow thing? Would you say that the Christian life is an unhappy thing? Ah, no. Not if you've been able to synchronize the little string of your heart with the great organs of heaven. And just as one vibration picks up another, so our little strings can throb and vibrate with a slight reaction of the great glorious vibration of the being of God. Will you say that that's a dull life? But the will of God is also energetic. God has the ability to make new decisions. Isn't that thrilling? We often have on our walls, prayer changes things. You really believe that? You believe God makes new decisions in answer to our prayer? Do you believe there is an ascension of faith? Listen, in my research on the revivals of America, I read of individuals functioning in a very mediocre way. I read of Father Nash, who was Finney's foreman in many revivals. And he would say, well, I don't need much here, folks. If I can have a room in this town, and, and the less comfort I have, the better. And if you'll shove a little food up here for me once in a while, I don't need any financial plan. I don't need any a great uh, citywide advertising program. Uh, just give me a place where I can wait on God. And he would reach out in the arms of faith and beseech the hand of God to come down. Faith is a mutual thing. It's not automatic. It's not God coming down and pressing a faith button in our personality. It's a mutual enlargement of our recognition of the being of God and God's condescension. Well, I don't know what these dear old prayer warriors did, but I know that I read 
that something happened in these towns Many times salesmen would come in in those days on the canal boat and say, I feel something strange here. Nobody wants to talk about business. I'm not getting anywhere. Uh, I don't want to waste my time. I'm going to get on the next boat and get out of here. And so they would get on the next boat and try to get out. Says, wait a minute here. I'm going the wrong direction. I'm going to get off at the next stop, take the next boat back, get back where I was. Why are you going back where you was? I don't know. I'm just going. Maybe dear old Father Nash was touching the throne of God and the power of the anointing was coming down upon him and God was moving. What do you think can happen in this city? If we go forth with firebrands of heart-throbbing faith, believing God. Think of God's ability. We shall presently in another lecture develop the voluntary limitations that God has committed himself to. And that salvation is not a matter of sheer dynamic force. That it is a cooperative enterprise. And God is looking to us to respond in this energy of faith. We've said a good deal about the natural attributes. to throw out this grand distinction for your thoughtfulness. We have natural attributes. We have moral attributes. The natural attribute is something that I possess as my basic endowment. It depends on nothing. It is my possibility. It's awful hard to whittle a tenth of a second off the hundred yard dash. Because man has an attribute that normally can just run so fast. It's awful hard to cut a second off the four-minute mile. And when somebody whittles four seconds off, that's phenomenal. These are natural attributes, something within the realm of our capacity. Man has the natural attribute of thought, the ability of reason. God also has the natural attribute of thought. He has the natural attribute of emotion, the possibility of emotion. He has the natural attribute of free will, the ability to decide. He has the natural attribute of eternity, endless existence. He has the natural attribute of omnipotence. 
unmeasured power. He has the natural attribute of the knowledge of everything that is knowable. Nothing going on at this moment escapes the knowledge of God. The distribution of every, every iota of every atom. Think of the extensiveness of the knowledge of God. Every thought. Jesus said he needed not for anyone to tell him what was in man because he knew what was in man. A natural attribute. It's not a dependence upon any choice on the part of God. Omnipresence is another natural attribute. The ability to be everywhere at once. This was the principle of the Great Commission. Lo, I am with you always. These are all natural attributes. They are endowments. They do not depend on choice. But when we come to consider the moral attributes, which we shall do this evening, we enter in to the real glorious moral character of God. In a sense, God can't help his endowments. He has them. We can't help our endowments. We possess them. What we do with our endowments is another thing. We're in the age of horsepower. There was a time when the automotive industry agreed that they weren't going to promote power, and then one of them weakened, and, and the others followed suit, and, and so we have another grand horsepower race going on. Admittedly, if you've got 400 and some horsepower under a hood, it's harder to control it than if you've got 75. But nevertheless, the law is not at odds with you for what you have under the hood. It is what you are doing with it that counts. Moral character has to do with voluntary use of our endowments. And when we think that God uses his immense energy, let me challenge you. Some of the greatest brains we have are in the area of crime. Some of the greatest educational movements we have in the crime syndicate. Developing intelligence as to how to escape this and escape that. What's the trouble? Is it a trouble with ability? No, it's a trouble with usage. If that is bad, where would we be with the natural attributes of God if he chose to use them against us? That's why when we think the scripture says God is love or chooses to use his natural attributes for the benefit of all and only the benefit of all. This gets me excited. You know, I don't respond very much to hand-clapping 
I don't respond very much to pumping. It's like the dear old aunt who used to tell me to prime the, the cistern pump to get water out of it. And many times you have to, have to go for the second pailful to get the old cistern to respond. I don't respond very well to this. But when you allow me to think of the endowment of God, the greatness of God, the intelligence of God, the emotion of God, the will of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, and allow me to see that God possessing this immense, seemingly uncontrollable area of endowment chooses to live in the delicacy of love and use his great ability for the good of all moral creatures. Then my heart wants to climb up the old mountain out here, and even if there'd be no vegetation up there, yet it would give me a clear view in heavenward direction. And I'd be able to praise the name of the Lord that the great dynamics of God are not subject to ill control. Lord Jesus, somehow enlarge our minds of the greatness of thy being. Somehow kindle my mind afresh of thy glorious, wonderful being. Kindle the mind of each one of us to appreciate more the greatness of our God. And then as we think that thou art the great and mighty God, the almighty one, and yet thou dost choose to lead the world in love and control thy great energies benevolently, kindly, lovingly. How our hearts respond in worship and praise. Lest therefore our thinking together enlarge our minds further on these glorious things. In Jesus' name, amen.